Last week, we began a new sermon series, a skimming survey of the book of Joshua, which will lead us on neatly into the book of Acts. If you weren't here for that message, it might be helpful to go to our handsome new website and its podcast section and listen to it to give you a grounding for this series. I laid out briefly where we're going with it, and we looked at the very beginning of the book of Joshua and God's commission to Joshua, his servant, for the task ahead of him. Today, we are carrying on apace, and we'll be skirting Joshua chapters 2, 3, and 4 this morning, taking very much a zoomed-out view of these stories, despite the fact that there are real riches to feast on in the details of these passages. Ours is the pinch-and-zoomed view that will show us the more general lay of the land, the threads that tie these stories together. These threads that I want to share with you this morning, I'm calling the fame of God, faith in God, and the fear of God. The fame of God, faith in God, and the fear of God. So as for the fame of God, God wants to be known. Despite the militaristic tone of the book of Joshua, God remains the loving heavenly father on a rescue mission for mankind. And he loves it when people discover him, recognize what it means that there is a God and get to know him and what he's like. When people discover that he is fundamentally loving and holy. God wants fame all over the earth, not because he's vain. It's not like he gets a kick out of seeing his Instagram likes going up. God wants to be known because that's the point of us. Creation was designed to know God, to be in a productive partnership with him, a fruitful harmony of love where we get to experience life as his cherished children and build that precious relationship that he made us for. That realization of who God is leads us on into relationship, which on our part requires faith in God. His actions towards his people throughout history have been to provide for us, to give us good things, to demonstrate his trustworthiness, and to invite us into a deeper and deeper relationship with him, even when we deserve so much less. Because the Lord wants a real two-way relationship with us, he seems to want our involvement in his actions amongst us. Miracles, the wonders of God, are often found when there was a strength of faith in God to invite them. Jesus experienced a curious lack of this faith in Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. And although that's a topic for another day, Our faith in God, our inviting him to act and trusting him to, is really important to him. Yeah, he can do it without us, but he really doesn't want to. Finally, as for the fear of God, there are two types of fear that I want to talk about this morning. Firstly, that of those who oppose God, who have found themselves tempted or tricked into the enemy's army, caught up in the spiritual rebellion that the devil led against the Lord, and those who find themselves on the wrong side of the one true God. To them, I think God wants to show his might, to show them clearly, and to everyone else watching, that picking a fight with God and with those under his protection is a bad idea, and to encourage those poor souls, if they will be persuaded, to put down their weapons and to themselves become forgiven children, reunited to their loving Heavenly Father. 
I am certain that God longs for this. The second type of fear is for us, for those of us who know him, who have that loving relationship with him. And I'm sure that we often need to be reminded of God's strength and his holiness. We can enjoy the love of God so much that we can sweep under the carpet what he's revealed to us about his uncompromising heart for keeping us from evil. We might be tempted to imagine him as the weak parent that spoils us by giving us too many sweets or indulges in our half-obedience because he's all gooey at us. No. He's not a weak parent. And I recommend Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, for those of you who want to read more on that. God loves us. He loves us enough to say no to the things that will harm us. He loves us enough to want to see us grow, to strengthen and mature in our relationships with him. And he loves us enough to demand our real, our full obedience to him. That building is dangerous, son. Don't go in there. Do not trespass. I mean it. This is what I mean by the fear of God. God's desire that we fear him is a deeply loving desire. So, the fame of God, faith in God, and the fear of God. We're going to look at our incredibly long portion of scripture in two halves, and as I said, we're going to skirt right over it. So let's jump into the first passage and begin our whistle-stop tour. We will be jumping verses here and there to fit such a larger scripture in this morning, large amount of scripture in this morning. So I hope you'll follow along, either in your Bibles, Bible devices, or on the screen. And... Also, I invite you to read over the verses that we don't talk about this morning, that we skip over. Read those at home so that you can prove that I'm not talking absolute nonsense to you. Uh, make sure that what I tell you from Scripture is consistent and true. Beth has very kindly agreed to read Joshua chapter 2 for us. We're going verses 1 to 4, 8 to 11, and then 23 and 24. Go for it, mate. And Joshua, the son of Nun, who sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up onto the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and God, Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens and above, and all on, say that again. He is the God in the heavens above and on, on the earth beneath. Verse 23. Then the two men returned to Israel's camp. They came down from the hills and passed over, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. 
and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Thank you, mate. Isn't it good when you get the Old Testament names right and then stumble over a simple word that, yeah, very good. Thank you, friend. We're also really testing Joel this morning. <laughs> this whole thing's just a, a job interview for you, mate. You keep doing that. So Israel is camped on the other side of the River Jordan from the Promised Land. And the Lord has commanded Joshua to go in, as we heard last week. So Joshua follows Moses' example, as well as good military common sense, and sends a couple of spies to scout out ahead, to gather some intelligence about the situation that they're about to enter into. These spies find Rahab, who offers to hide them, which is a good thing too, because the city guards are onto them. For those who are wondering, uh, most commentaries I've seen about the spies' choice of host observe that the context that a prostitute like Rahab would have would make her a fairly logical choice to gain intelligence from. There is no suggestion that the Israelite spies sought any more intimate relationship with her than that. Given the Lord's specific command to be holy and what was spiritually at stake on this mission, it would seem to me to have been a terrible idea for them to have looked at Rahab as anything other than a protector and a source of information. So Rahab not only hides the spies and misleads the guards, choosing and declaring her side then and there, she then tells these spies spies, the mood in Jericho in verse 9. They are scared in Jericho. The people who live in a strong and very large city, as Moses' spies had observed in Numbers 13, they were scared of this tribe of Israel. Scared of this body of people traveling across the wilderness, apparently led by God. So much so that, as we read in Joshua 2.11, our hearts melted, they said, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why were the people of Jericho scared? In the natural, what their natural senses could tell them of their situation, they have a big, intimidating city, they got big, scary walls, and they were described by the spies that Moses sent out as big, tall, strong guys. So why were they scared? Well, the answer lies in verses 9 and 10. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. We have heard the news of what God had done for Israel in the Red Sea against a much stronger enemy, the empire of Egypt, That news had reached Jericho, and they knew, spiritually, that they were in trouble. Add to that the more recent stories of what had happened when the kings of Sihon and Og had opposed God's people, and they were completely destroyed for doing so. The fame of God, his power, and his protection of his people had spread to Jericho, and they were terrified. Verse 11 carries on the logic. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's like saying, we recognize that the God you worship is actually God. 
The Hebrew here uses two different words when it says, that we translate God. Because they say, for Yahweh, which is Israel's God, is God, is Elohim, meaning a God, or the God. So Yahweh, your God, he actually is the Elohim. He is the chief of the God, uh, of the gods over the heavens above and the earth beneath. It's like saying all realms, all areas on earth and in heavens are under Yahweh's control. We get that now. The recognition changes from we'll pray to our tribe's God and you pray to yours and we'll see who wins into ah, your God actually is the God of the gods. He wins. Game over. Fast forward about 4,000 years to us here today. Here's a challenge. Friends, do we live confidently in the knowledge that our God is the chief amongst all forces? Or do we think of God as powerful in some areas, we might even experience his presence at church, but we're nervous of other authorities in our life, in other areas, maybe at work or amongst certain friends, we're not actually convinced deep down that God is the God of that place or amongst those people. The people of Jericho, they recognized power when they saw it. In the places in our lives where we assume that it's impossible for God to break into that place, I pray that we remember his mighty power, that we invite him in, and I will be surprised if things don't change when we do that. Another reflection from Rahab's declaration. We have heard. The people of Jericho had come to know about the power and protection of God because they'd been told. Again, for you and I, how ready are we to tell God's story to those around us? You'll have heard this before, I'm sure, but there's real wisdom in the, pr- in the phrase that Christians are to witness to one another and to those who aren't Christians, to witness to people about Jesus, not to lawyer to people about Jesus. There are some people who have a particular gift in evangelism of apologetics, of genius arguments, of being able to persuade people of the truth of God. And there is a massive place for them in ministry, but most of us aren't them. Most of us are not asked by God to be arguers for the kingdom of God, simply witnesses. I saw God do this and it was great. Or I experienced this, God did it. No argument required. We're even allowed to not know all of the answers when people ask us about those experiences. I experienced God heal me in this. Well, why doesn't God heal everybody today? Don't know, mate. But I can tell you what I do know. God healed me. I tell you what, come on Sunday and I'll introduce you to some people who can answer every question you have. (laughs) Seriously, though, your honest experience, witnessed faithfully, carries more weight than the best argument ever could. People respect a real experience honestly told. And the power that God gives those moments, the opportunities he takes to meet people who are hearing about him are wonderful. I said last week, and I'll say again, 
our situation is not one of marching into battle against any people at all. Our enemy is the enemy of God, not flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities. Devil, Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, who opposes us out of his hatred for God. And our battle, our mission is to be lifelines of rescue for those who are trapped in a world that the enemy is in control of. We are to be carriers of the almighty presence of God behind enemy lines, landing pads for his power and glory to burst out of us to bring healing and life. In that moment, when you share your simple witness testimony, you tell your story of God's work in you, you give someone an opportunity to open themselves up to a meeting with God. What a wonderful, powerful gift to give someone. Back to Joshua. In verses 23 and 24, the spies return to the camp in Israel, thanks to some crafty advice from Rahab. And they give their report. Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Solid confirmation. What an encouragement to Joshua. What a brilliant in the natural words to put next to his promise direct from God. And when they follow that with, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us, they are undoing the negative word that Moses' spies had brought back all those years before. The spies that Moses had sent out previously into the promised land came back with a message of fear, of don't do it. These guys were like the anti-faith The effect of their message in Numbers chapter 14 was fear, weeping, and flat-out rebellion against Moses. So when Joshua's spies come back and say, and all the land melts away, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us, that's a pretty great start. This time, God's promise is clear, and he's confirmed it. The view in the natural confirms it. The enemy is running scared. There is a powerful fear of God. For us, again, as I said last week, God has done it. He has won the victory already. It's now ours to follow him where he sends us and to apply that victory to the world around us. Now, we won't take too long, but we have a part two, so I'm going to invite Beth up again to read us the second half of this morning's story. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, and they may know that as as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, When you come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. In verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, 
And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the harvest time. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in the heap very far away, at Adam, the city beside Zerathon. And those flowing down towards the, toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over the opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over the dry ground until all the nation finished passing over Jordan. Chapter 4. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle and the plains of Jericho. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted on the dry ground and the waters of the Jordan returned to the place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the, <laughs> out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? They shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on the dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Give her a round of applause. That was very good. Thank you so much, mate. <laughs> if, you, if you want to read this to yourself slightly um, more gently at a, a slower pace than I've forced us to rush through it this morning, can I recommend to you the Read Scripture app, which uh, <laughs> we're currently journeying through as a church, and starting tomorrow, we'll be beginning Joshua. So even if you're still stuck in Leviticus, just skip the rest. Come back to those worthwhile books at another date and join us in Joshua, why don't you? Lovely. We're not going to spend as long on that passage as you might fear. Um, given the length of it that Beth read so beautifully, you might be terrified for a 40-minuter from me. Pray against it. What a dramatic way to enter into the promised land. Joshua's leadership over God's people as God's chosen man for the job, get some serious confirmation. How is Joshua going to follow in Moses' footsteps? Moses, the man who talked with God face to face? Well, whereas Moses' spies came back and started a rebellion, Joshua's spies came back and filled Israel with faith. Moses had led Israel out of Egypt with a miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. Joshua leads Israel into the Promised Land with a miraculous crossing of the River Jordan. And Joshua, similar to Moses, models and demonstrates hearing and obeying God and challenging Israel to do the same. Let's dive back in and pick up a few verses in passing, starting at chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua addresses the people and says, effectively, Folks, no sitting on the fence. It's time to go all in. Consecrate means to set apart or to make holy, so... Holify yourselves, team. This is about to get real. That's the Hollywood remake. Spiritually, sort yourselves out. Make absolutely sure you are right with God, that his holiness coming near would be a good thing for you and not something that would cause you problems. Would. 
the holiness of God drawing near be a comfortable and joyful experience for you right now? Would you bask in glorious light that radiates into the core of your being? Or would you find yourself squirming under his holy brightness, awkward about a certain side sin that hasn't been made right with him yet, more burning than basking? We're going to be offering prayer up at the front uh, as I finish speaking later on. And if you need to get something right with God this morning, I can assure you, He's pretty good at this forgiveness business. And I'll invite you to come forward. Someone will gladly pray with you. Love us to be right with God, every one of us. Holify yourselves, Joshua says. Joshua wants no risk to the mission or to God's people. God's coming to do wonders, holify yourselves. It's healthy and it's right to fear God's purity. The fear of God is not confined to the enemies of God. In the same way that a child should have respect for their parent and their parent's authority, should fear disobeying them, we need that sort of fear of God alongside our intimate love of him. He's not a tyrant asking us to cower before him whilst he laughs over us. I've been practicing. But that's not what I'm talking about with the fear of God. The Lord is the loving, doting parent whose authority we really need to recognize. Without that respect, without that authority, we reduce our relationship with God to being just our mate, whose advice we appreciate but uh, we could take it or leave it. The fear of the Lord, the respect for the one whose commandments for us are designed with our best interests at heart, is entirely good for us. So God tells Joshua to send the Ark of the Covenant into the water carried by the priests. The Ark of the Covenant, this is the item that sits in the middle of the Holy of Holies in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle for Israel. This is the most God's presence-filled item that Israel has, the box that is designed to carry the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, with large golden cherubim angels sitting on it, surrounding a mercy seat, God's visible throne. This object is the highest physical symbol of God's presence amongst his people, and that is what's to be sent into the river first. And in verse 15 of chapter 3, It's as the feet of the priests carrying the ark touch the water that the water begins to dry up. This is a hugely powerful act, a mighty miracle. God was literally removing the barrier between his people and the land that he was telling them to go forward into. It's actually even better than that. In verse 15, in the brackets there, we read that the river Jordan, which goes from moderately sized river to huge overflowing flood, was at its deepest and its widest. I read some commentaries about this, that people who visited the site and went to look at the river when it was in flood said that the currents were so strong that they were too nervous to bathe in the river for fear of being swept away. So God has chosen the most difficult time the most intimidating size and sight of the River Jordan, it's most difficult to cross and then dries it up. Pretty spectacular. Pretty 
awesomely encouraging if you're Israel. Pretty absolutely terrifying if you're in Jericho and you can see this happening from your city walls. The fame of God in this miracle was a huge signpost to him as the true God for his own people to point to and for other nations to recognize. God's fame, his reputation from this act was pretty powerful. And as the fame of God grew, so the fear of God and faith in God grew. The Israelites' witness testimony was pretty awesome here. Look, I don't know about you, mate, and I don't know how he did it, but I know what I saw. God told us to get ready to cross. The priests stood in the river, and then that river completely dried up, and we all crossed it. It even flowed back again the moment we stepped out of it. I'm just saying. Argue with that. God is even creative enough to make a specific statement to his people and spell out exactly what he intends to show by this miracle. It's a sign with three conclusions, which we read in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, 10, and 11. In verse 7, by showing you this sign, God's saying, Joshua's my man. And in verse 10, he says, I'm going to be amongst you. I'm going to fulfill my promise and drive out these enemies. Don't you worry. It's as if God is saying, remember Egypt? Remember how strong they were and how scared you were of them? Remember that Red Sea and how I parted it for you to walk on dry ground? Seem familiar? Really is me doing this, you know. And I'm still here. And Joshua, he really is being led by me. So let's look finally at what Joshua did next. Chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. Israel has crossed the river Jordan and they pick up a set of stones from out of the middle of the river. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, next one, thank you, mate. (laughs) Uh, Verse 20, those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us when we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. These stones, taken from the middle of a dry riverbed and placed into a monument on the side, these stones, as a monument of what God did for his people that day, are an Ebenezer. It's a word that appears in 1 Samuel. An Ebenezer in Hebrew means a stone of help, and it's also a really lovely word that features in one of my favorite hymns of all time, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a line recognizing that it's only by God's help that I've come this far. It's also Scrooge from, you know, Christmas Carol, Ebenezer, it's God, yeah. Ooh, Ooh, trivia. So an Ebenezer, a stone of help, is a faith builder For the days when we can't quite remember that God is God, that he is mighty and faithful, powerful and loving, strong to save and willing to save. Joshua rounds off today's passage, making sure that, in verse 24, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Here's how I think it works. God does something amazing to reveal his power, his love, and his holiness 
and his fame grows. His people hear about it, or even maybe they saw it, and his people's faith in and healthy fear of him grow. So we trust him more. We step out a bit less nervously the next time he leads us. We make space for God to move amongst us, and he uses it and does amazing things. And so our faith in him and our fear in him grows, and so on. I have a friend who's a missionary evangelist. He spends his time wandering around the streets of the city he's in, asking God to point him to people. And apparently recently he just approaches anyone and everyone. And the conversations that he has with people, the interactions he has, the healings that God does through him, the words and pictures that he has for people who've never experienced God speaking to them today, astonish me. They lift my soul whenever I hear from him what God's been up to. That spreading fame of God's work gives me faith. And that's one of the things that has given me the courage to stand before you and say, I think God's telling me that someone here has a sore back. And when I thought God might have been telling me that and I said it and someone came forward and it turns out they did have a sore back and I prayed for them and they were healed then and there to their surprise and mine. One of those, oh yes, the Lord healed you, did he? Thanks! The fame of God spread in my life, in this person's life, and everyone who they told about it. We were astonished. They happened, actually, not to even have been a Christian at the time. And so they experienced God meeting them and healing them in a way that blew them away. They gave their life to Jesus. And now, that's become another wonderful memory and part of my faith to step out whenever God prompts me to say something before you guys the next time. God had performed amazing signs to protect and to provide for Israel in the wilderness. The news of these things, the fame of them, had spread to Jericho. And Rahab's faith and Jericho's fear was a part of the confirmation that I then believe helped Joshua to obey and to march Israel towards a flooded river to give God another opportunity to show his power and glory. And his fame for that act would have both built up Israel's faith and further crushed the enemy's hopes and strength. Do you see what I mean? The fame of God leads to the faith of God and the fear of God, leads to opportunities for the fame of God. And those who don't know him, but can't deny what they see, are faced with a challenge to put their faith in God themselves, as Rahab did, or to fear him flee before him. It's exactly the same for us. I would love to see God doing more things, more wonders amongst us here in East Fife. More Lord, more miraculous healing, miraculous provision, more words and pictures that cut right to the heart of our lives and show us who you are. More opportunities for your fame to grow in this land. And let the witness testimonies of what God does amongst us build our faith in God and our fear of God so that those who don't know him are drawn in to see for themselves and meet the God who saves. It's my prayer that we see God's glory more and more tangibly and that we're encouraged in our trust in him into more and more faithful acts of obedience, that when we find ourselves carrying his presence with our toes in the edge of the water, we remember the stones set up for us by those who've gone before We remember the times that God's come through for us and we choose to step out when he tells us to. Why don't you stand and I'll pray for you.